0: Welcome to Present Value, a podcast created by students at Cornell University's Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management. I'm your host, Michael Brady. This is the third episode in our 10-part season. We're excited to have Tom Gilovich joining us on Present Value. Gilovich is the Irene Blecker Rosenfeld Professor of Psychology at Cornell University. He holds a BA in Psychology from the University of California, Santa Barbara, and a PhD in Psychology from Stanford. Gilovich has made significant contributions to the fields of social psychology and behavioral economics, including pioneering work on the spotlight effect and the illusion of transparency. Some of his other scholarly interests include gratitude, informal conversation, happiness, and the difference between material and experiential consumption. Sports fans will recognize Gilovich from his widely circulated 1985 paper entitled The Hot Hand in Basketball on the misperception of random sequences, a classic paper that continues to spark vigorous debate in sports bars and academia to this day. Gilovich has written several popular books, including Why Smart People Make Big Money Mistakes and How to Correct Them, Lessons from the New Science of Behavioral Economics, and The Wisest One in the Room, how you can benefit from social psychology's most powerful insights. Tom Gilovich, welcome to Present Value. Happy to be here. It's an honor, in fact. You have research coming out about sudden death aversion. And you and your co authors actually recently wrote a piece in the New York Times that examines this theory as it relates to football. What is sudden death aversion, and why does it matter for people who aren't calling plays for Tom Brady? Uh, we started that op ed with an event known to any
1: Packer fan which is a couple of years ago, the Packers were in a hopeless situation, trailing by seven points with just seconds to go and far away from the end zone. Aaron Rodgers did one of his magic acts and uh, unhurled a Hail Mary that a seldom-used receiver plucked out of the air over an all-pro cornerback, and they scored. No one thought this could happen, and so now they face this kind of difficult Choice, or you would think a difficult choice. They're now trailing by a single point. They could kick an extra point to try to send the game into overtime, almost certainly send it into overtime and try and win in overtime, or to go for two and settle the issue right then and there. You might think that the Packers would be especially tempted to go for two because the previous year they were in the exact same situation. They sent it into overtime and lost before they ever got the ball in overtime. Let's not do that again, you might think that they would think. But they did what all NFL teams do, which is kick the extra point, try to win in overtime, which is what they did. And this year, too, they didn't, never got the ball. They lost the coin toss. The Arizona Cardinals got it, scored on their first position, possession. Game over. Season over. And so what you have there is a situation where you can risk it all right away or defer the outcome. Try to push it off into the future and see what happens. And there are many circumstances like that in which it's better. You can statistically show that it's better to settle it right then and there. You have a better chance of winning overall if you do that. But people don't do that. And that's what we refer to as sudden death aversion. You are averse to settling it right then and there. You push it off into the future. And you can see this in the NFL, like that example. You could see it in the National Basketball Association. You can see it in the casino. When a player is playing blackjack and you've got a 16 in your hand and the dealer has a 10-up, the optimal solution to blackjack tells you you need to take a card then. You're going to win more often than if you don't. But it's not a good hand. You're probably not going to win. It's so hard to take a hit on that uh, circumstance. You just want to know. I don't want to bust right now. Let me just put it off to the future. When you do that, you're less likely to win. Does sudden death aversion hone
0: in on a particular variety of loss aversion?
1: Uh, yeah. Well, it's a focus on the immediate circumstance. So it's kind of a myopia. And it's a myopia that's focused not so much on, hey, we could settle this right now and win. That's in your mind a little bit. But what dominates is, hey, we could settle it right now and lose. And how much are the sports fans and sportscasters going to be on my back if we do that? So one cause of sudden death aversion is what the economist Richard Thaler refers to as myopic loss aversion. Yeah, you've got a very narrow frame that you're looking at. What's going to happen if we go for two? The mind just naturally focuses more on what's going to happen with the negative than the positive.
0: So sudden death aversion seems very relevant for sports. You look at football, whether teams go for two to win or kick a free point to tie. and basketball, whether teams shoot three-pointers for the win or, or two for the tie. Are there other situations in society that can be explained by sudden death aversion? Sure. There
1: are a number of notable instances in which someone has done something wrong and they could fess up to having done something wrong right then and there, and that's what they're responsible for. But not surprisingly, you find people somehow try, oh, I can't fess up and let me create some kind of smokescreen. And it's often the smokescreen that ends up hurting them the most. That is uh, the most famous example, of course, is Richard Nixon. If he had just said, yes, it was stupid, I authorized, or someone in my administration authorized a break-in into the Watergate Hotel, That would have been a problem, but it's probably something that they could have overcome. Instead, this elaborate cover-up, obstruction of justice, and that's what led to his impeachment. More recently, the Olympian Ryan Lochte and his friends were caught essentially vandalizing a bathroom. And if they had just said, boy, that was stupid, but we we just had to go to the bathroom. I'm really sorry. Uh, The public would have been just fine with that. Instead, they invent some elaborate lie. And when that was found out, he paid a much higher price, lost all of his sponsorships, for example, which wouldn't have happened if he had just fessed
0: up. Sure. So is it about not being able to properly weight the consequences right in front of me versus, you know, a consequence that's going to happen a week from now? Or who knows when it would happen?
1: Yeah, it's taking a a narrow frame, focusing on what's happening now. We're very present focused. That's part of it. And also we can focus with a lot of clarity on what would happen now if I just fessed up that yes, I authorized the break in. Uh oh, that's a problem. You can see that clearly. You compare that to uh oh, let me let me do something to try to ward this off and we'll deal with it down the line. Well, the down the line is farther down the line. It's harder to imagine what it is. So you've got this concrete thing that you're worried about in the here and now compared to this vague thing. And so it's very tempting to just say, ah, let's go further
0: down the path and we'll deal with the vague stuff later. You earned your PhD at Stanford during a period known in psychology as the cognitive revolution. What was that revolution and what was it like to be at Stanford during this inflection point in psychology? The cognitive revolution refers to the fact that psychologists, (laughs) this
1: can sound surprising to a lot of people. Psychologists took thinking and our internal mental life very seriously and tried to study it very rigorously. And that can sound surprising because you say, well, isn't that what psychology is all about? You would think that that would be the case, but there was 50 years of associationist behaviorist focus in psychology where you focused on the behavior the thought was looking inside you're going to have some thoughts about it but it's kind of mushy and you can't really study it very well but we can precisely study behavior we can precisely measure behavior so let's focus on that and that was productive for some things it led for example to certain therapeutic approaches to deal with phobias they work very well for phobias those behaviorist approaches don't work as well for other kinds of conditions and for a variety of historical reasons, one of them being the advent of the digital computer. People started to think more in purely cognitive terms and took seriously your own reflections on your mental life and tried to study those reflections on what's going on inside the mind, not just outside the body in terms of the behavior, and really changed a lot of
0: what scientific psychology was, was all about. What are some examples of the type of research that the cognitive revolution catalyzed or led to? With the, the
1: start of the cognitive revolution, one enduring question is um, how much of the conclusions you draw, the thoughts that you have, the way that you think about the world is a function of bottom-up processes. You're taking in stimuli from the environment and paying attention to them. So you're driving along and you see a group of people on a hillside all dressed in black and they look kind of somber. Those stimuli tell you, hmm, that might be a funeral. Uh, You're deciding it's a funeral because of the stimuli that you see. That's bottom-up processing. And that's part of how we perceive the world. But of course, We also perceive the world through top-down processing. We have a notion of this is what people do at a funeral. We have knowledge that we bring to bear. People tend to dress in black at a funeral. And uh, a lot of the cognitive revolution was figuring out what's the interplay? How important is top-down processing? How important is bottom-up processing? And that's led to some remarkable study. So one study uh, inspired by work here at Cornell, although this particular experiment, I think, was done elsewhere. You watch a videotape of kind of a fractured basketball team. It's three-person basketball. They're not really playing basketball. They're just passing a basketball back and forth to one another. And your job is to count the number of passes that, let's say, the team in the white T-shirts is making or the team in the black t-shirts are making. You're monitoring this the whole time, and lo and behold, the experimenter sends someone in a gorilla costume to walk right in the middle of it, and a huge percentage of people don't notice it. So this, what you would think, would be a very pronounced stimulus that would get those bottom-up processes really churning. Turns out, because you're looking at this
0: through the filter of what should happen on a basketball court, you just don't see it. I'll admit, when I first saw something similar to what you're describing, I did not see the gorilla and was just totally shocked that I that I could have missed that. It was a really bizarre experience to know that the gorilla got, b- bangs his chest, walks across the screen, and, and I didn't notice it.
1: Yeah, one of the that same research team, again, graduate students here in the psychology department, they did a version of that on the art squad here at Cornell. And what happens is... I go up to you, you're just a by on the art quad, and I start to ask you for directions to some place, and you're giving me these directions, and I've prearranged for some research assistants to walk in between us, two guys carrying a big door, and as the door cuts between us, one of them lets go of it, and I pick it up, and now you're talking not to me, but to someone else, and 60% of people don't notice that they're talking to a completely different person.
0: That's, that's amazing. Some of your early work includes the spotlight effect and the illusion of transparency. Uh, maybe first we could start with the spotlight effect. What is the spotlight effect?
1: Whenever we're out in public, we're concerned about our image, what sort of impression we're making, and we don't want people to think that we're off in some way, that uh, we're bizarre in some way. And so we monitor how we're being perceived by the world. And we kind of overdo it. We think the world is paying more attention to us than is actually the case. That is the spotlight effect. One of the most cited examples of that is a study we did here where you come into our lab to get extra credit in a psych course to participate in an experiment. And the experimenter says, great, thank you for showing up. First thing I'd like you to do is to put on this T-shirt. And he hands you a T-shirt with a picture of the pop singer Barry Manilow on it. And uh, there's nothing wrong with the music of Barry Manilow, but to college students who are concerned about being cool, this is the last thing you want to put on and go be seen by your peers. But everyone agrees to wear the shirt, and the experimenter says, I need you to go down the hallway and enter a conference room over there. You're a little late. Everyone else has started a little before you. But I think it'll be okay. Just go in there. And uh, so that's what the subject does. They knock on the door. Another experimenter lets them in, and there are five or six other people there filling out questionnaires. The experimenter says, oh, here, take a seat. I need you to start filling out these questionnaires. And just as they're about to sit down, that experimenter says, yeah, you know what? I think this isn't going to work. I think it's too late. So why don't you step out in the hall? Goes out in the hall, and the first experimenter says, This is actually a test of incidental memory. You walked in there. No one was asked to pay attention to you or remember anything about you, but we're going to ask them what they know about you. And in particular, we're going to ask them, did they notice who was on your shirt and do they remember it? And we want to compare reality with intuitions about reality. So what percentage of those people, how many of the five or six people in that room will be able to tell us who's on your T-shirt? And people wildly overestimate. They're so concerned with, uh-oh, I'm walking into this room. People are going to think I'm a Barry Manilow fan. And that's so present on their minds that they think it's more present on other people's minds
0: as well. Sure. Can you give me a sense of the proportion of which, uh, how much of people overestimate it?
1: Yeah, it's basically, uh, depending on which number you want to start with, 100%. That is, they think twice as many people uh, are going to notice than actually do.
0: Can I ask how you decided on Barry Manilow for the experiment? Uh,
1: (laughs) Well, we actually had probed for the spotlight effect in a different way. We did a study in which we initially had people do a problem-solving kind of activity like you would find in the Johnson School, where they have these breakout rooms, go solve this particular problem, and they engage in conversation. And afterwards, we pull them out and ask them about their own performance which of the things they said that were they're proud of that other people are going to notice, what were the most embarrassing or problematic comments made. And in both positive and negative things, people think that other people are going to cite the things they said more often than other people do. So we demonstrated the spotlight effect in that situation, but that seemed a little a little dry and so is there any way we can get this message a little clear if we're trying to sell it to the world and get the world to remember it so let's try to come up with something else so i I pushed in our lab meeting how can we make this memorable because my advisor in graduate school i think did some of the most brilliant studies partly because they're almost like biblical parables they're they're very crisp and once you remember the image of the study You remember the hypothesis, you remember what the data is like, and how the two fit together. And so we thought, is there an image we could come up with that maybe people will only remember that? And if they do, everything will fall into place. And that led us to the, um, let's have them wear an embarrassing t-shirt. Okay, who should be on the t-shirt? And for that particular time, it was Barry Manilow. We did some replications where we thought Not sure people would know who Barry Manilow is, college students at least. So we had people wearing vanilla ice t-shirts and Cornell students were mortified about that prospect as well.
0: That's fascinating. And what about the illusion of transparency? Can you explain this illusion and its implications?
1: Yeah, you could think of it as a corollary of the spotlight effect, the internal version of it. That is, the spotlight effect is we're very focused on what we're doing. And when we try to get in someone else's head, we adjust from our own experience, and the adjustment is insufficient. And so we recognize other people aren't as focused on us as we are on ourselves. We adjust, the adjustment's insufficient, so we end up overestimating. Same thing is true about what's going on the inside. We're feeling something very powerfully, embarrassment or fear or elation. We know other people don't have access to our inside, so we adjust for that. But the adjustment is insufficient, and we think that we're leaking out cues to our internal states more than is actually the case. The literary example of this, the clearest, most familiar one, of course, is Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart, where someone who is murdered someone and buried the body under the floorboards is visited by a police officer. And while they're standing over those floorboards and the police officer is asking about the disappearance of this person, the guilty party is hearing this heartbeat louder and louder and louder. Of course, it's their own heartbeat and think that this must be available to everybody and ultimately confesses as a result. Uh, It's overgeneralizing, thinking that the things that are going on for you
0: are leaking out and more available to other people than is actually the case. You know, it seems that the illusion of transparency goes somewhat against some of this hackneyed pop advice we hear about body language. 90% of communication is through body language. Would you say that there's some disagreement between this advice and the illusion of transparency? Well, you could think of them as going together. That is to say, well,
1: one place you see this, it picks up on both of these. You'll often hear couples where they go to a party, one wants to leave earlier than the other, and they get in the car and one complains that, oh, why did you make me stay there that long? Well, you didn't tell me you wanted to leave. Oh, I made it so clear that you think that your body language conveyed. And if you have this belief that 90% of what I'm thinking is available through my nonverbal behavior, you should have been able to pick up on it. That really is a manifestation of the illusion of transparency. People think they are more transparent than they really are, and so they can complain when their partners
0: aren't seeing the obvious signs to
1: them, but they aren't so obvious to the observer. Your
0: 1999 book, Why Smart People Make Big Money Mistakes, was one of the first books to bring the field of behavioral economics into the public sphere. Can you outline some of the major themes in that book? Sure. The
1: thrust of the book and the thrust of behavioral economics is that there are some economic principles that if you follow them, you'll make the best economic decisions you can make under the given circumstances. So economics lays out very good prescriptive advice, but it's hard to follow that advice. So according to traditional economics, we should make our financial decisions in the context of thinking about our money and all our assets and liabilities in one overall integrated balance sheet. And you can show that if you make decisions that way, you'll make better decisions if you apportion the money into different accounts and make decisions one way, if you're thinking about one count and another way, if you're thinking about it in a different account. But that's not the way we act. We engage in what's called mental accounting. We treat money differently depending upon how we got it, uh, how we think about it. So think of the example that you get an inheritance from your, an aunt who was very careful with her money. The money you got kind of comes with her personality. It's going to be hard for you to say, oh, we're going to Bermuda with this money because she was so careful. You're going to treat it very carefully. If it came from a devil-may-care kind of person with his or her money, you're going to s- spend it more liberally. And so where it came from influences how you spend it. And sometimes if it's a big pot of money, its bigness means you're going to treat it with a fair amount of gravity. If it's not very much, we don't treat it so seriously. And, you know, people have done studies that if you get an unexpected bonus, if it's relatively small, you're not only more likely to spend it, you're likely to use it to justify a whole bunch of spending. So you spend it and more. You use it, okay, yeah, I just got this small tax return. Let's go out to dinner. Great. Let's buy a new tennis racket. Great. And pretty soon you've spent three times the bonus that you received. What were some of the other mistakes that you outlined in the book? Well, one principle that the psychologists Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman identified is the phenomenon of loss aversion, which is losing stuff just hurts a lot more than getting things feels good. So if someone gave you a thousand dollars, you'd be happy. You wouldn't be as happy as you would be miserable if someone took $1,000 from you. And that plays out in a whole bunch of different ways. One that we cite in the book, is an analysis of many thousands of transactions from a discount brokerage firm. And what they showed is that people are more likely to sell stocks that had gone up in value since they bought them than those that had gone down in value. You don't want to sell the ones that have gone down because then you, again, engaging in mental accounting, say, well, I lost money. I don't want to have a loser. So you sell the stocks that have gone up. And as a result of that, people sacrificed, I think the statistic was something like, uh, the stocks that they sold outperform the stocks that they held on to by 2.5%. And if you can get an extra 2.5% a year over not even that many years. That's a big difference in your outcome. And, you know, to get a sense of how perverse that is, just take it out of economic terms and put it into personal terms. You've got two friends, one who's been a stalwart friend, good to you the whole time you've known each other, and another who's kind of not been very reliable, done some bad things. You can only keep one of them. Who are you going to keep? Well, borrowing from that, people are keeping the rat. That makes no sense whatsoever in the interpersonal
0: domain, and it shouldn't make sense in the economic domain. You wrote Why Smart People Make Big Money Mistakes in the Late 90s. Do you think there was something about that time that created a public appetite to better understand human decision-making, especially with regard to the dot-com bubble and irrational exuberance, as Greenspan coined it?
1: Well, yes and no, uh, and let's start with the no part first. That is to say many of the ideas that behavioral economics has brought to our attention are enduring ideas that will speak to issues of whatever time. So the example we just talked about, loss aversion, think about the difference in how the country reacted to a certain gain. We're going to have affordable care. We're going to change the health care system so more people can have it. And even though that's a great benefit and it was achieved, it was achieved with less than stellar enthusiasm, let's say. Okay, now people have it and Trump comes in and wants to take and Trump and the Republicans want to take it away. Now you've got all of uh, Democrats acting like tea partiers before going to town hall meetings and saying, no, you can't take this away. So the notion of loss aversion, I think, will speak to every age and most of the principles we talked about there apply to just how we think and how we act in all sorts of domains in different time periods. But as you said, that was a period in which more and more people were participating in the stock market and as a result of that, the notion of getting some extra realistic advice from behavioral economists, so how about how to think about your money when you're thinking about spending, saving, etc. I
0: think uh, it was it arrived at a, at the right time. In your most recent book, The Wisest One in the Room, you make a distinction between being wise versus being smart. When we say someone is wise, we're really considering their ability to understand people, not necessarily their ability to prove Verma's last theorem. Can you define emotional intelligence and connect it to your definition of wisdom? The title of our book, in fact,
1: sets up that contrast. That is, there was a book called The Smartest Guys in the Room after the people who ran the energy trading company Enron into the ground. And by all accounts, they were technically brilliant people, but I don't think anyone were, would call them wise. And what's uh, what's the difference between that? And there are a number of things you can focus on when people talk about someone being wise. They talk about having perspective on things, not just focusing narrowly on what's happening now or in the near term, but thinking years, even generations down the road. That's a difference between a smart and a wise person. But also, it would be pretty hard to come up with someone who could think well in the short term and well in the long term, could be analytically brilliant, could do a whole bunch of things that you would say, that's impressive, but they just didn't understand people and had a hard time getting along with people. You wouldn't call that wise. And part of the reason for that is, Everything that humans do is in the context of other people. Even if all you want to do is be let, just leave me alone and let me do computer coding, if that's your life, still the most important thing in your life is other people because you have to have a boss who wants to pay you to do that and gives you what, whatever coding assignments uh, you have. Or even if you're making those assignments, you've got to write code that people want. So people are the most important things in your life, no matter how introverted you might be. As is often said, people are an incredibly social species. And therefore, if you can't figure out how to aim your
0: behavior with an eye toward what other people are thinking and doing, no one's going to call you wise. Can you go further and try to explain what emotional intelligence is?
1: Yeah, part of it is thinking about what's actually going to move other people. I can make a very sound logical argument and you can go, check. Yep, that's a good argument. And you may not be that moved by it. People who have high emotional intelligence are attuned to what are the things that really are going to connect with other people. Think of it in terms of resonance. Am I going to say things that resonate with you so that you're really on board? And that's different than appreciating the logical force behind things. Sometimes appreciating the logical force is all you need. It's so forceful that people follow it, but oftentimes it's not. I think we mentioned in the book, and I certainly mentioned this in class, there's this great quote by the our former poet laureate Maya Angelou who talks about the fact that you know people aren't, this isn't the exact quote, but it's the essence of it, that people aren't so much going to remember what you said, they're not going to remember what you did, but they are going to remember how they felt around you. And that's just, I think, a quote that's chock full of wisdom. What kind of resonance
0: are you creating in another person? In that chapter, you discuss a fascinating study that explores the effects of a differently framed prisoner's dilemma game, which yields very different results from the standard game. Can you share that study with our listeners along with the concept of framing?
1: Sure. That study is one of the best, if not the best, illustrations of this principle that social psychologists talk a lot about, which is the idea that people don't respond to the stimuli they encounter. They respond to the meaning they assign to those stimuli. And so in that particular experiment, all participants in the experiment play the prisoner's dilemma game. They have to decide to cooperate with their partner or defect from their partner with differential rewards. And What the investigators did is they just tinkered with it a little bit, and they didn't call it the Prisoner's Dilemma game. In one condition, they called it the community game, and in the other condition, they called it the Wall Street game. It's the same game with the same payoff, same economic incentives for defecting or cooperating. The... Differences in response rates could not have been more different. When you think it's the community game, that conjures up images of the point of this game is to build a community, so I want to cooperate, and cooperation rates are sky high. When it's the Wall Street game, oh, what's Wall Street about? It's getting my edge, making sure I or my investing partners maximize our returns. So that leads you to want to defect on your partner more, which is exactly what they found. And an interesting wrinkle of that study that isn't presented as often as that main result is that the participants who are asked to do this had been nominated by people who know them, either as the person they know who's most likely to cooperate or the person who they know who's least likely to cooperate. And those nominations tended not to matter very much. The people who were thought by their friends to be most likely to cooperate didn't cooperate very much if they were playing the Wall Street game and cooperated a lot when they were playing the community game. Same thing for people who they were nominated to not cooperate. They cooperated
0: quite a bit when they were playing the community game. I really enjoyed that you mentioned the cynic George Orwell in the book and referenced his classic essay, Politics and the English Language. Orwell knows that language really matters and, of course, is not a fan of how politicians use language to frame issues. What are your thoughts on politics and framing? There's a battle out
1: there. You know, whoever controls the terms of the debate controls the debate. If the message is people aren't responding to the stimuli out there, but the meaning they assign to them, if you want to influence people's behavior, you want to influence the meaning they assign to that behavior. And so we see this play out in the broader culture where people battle over the terms, pro-life versus pro-choice. Is someone an undocumented worker or an illegal alien? Those are very different things. Is someone a freedom fighter or a terrorist? The terms that you use powerfully channel the kinds of thinking that you have. One example that we mention in the book is that our then War Department, after the Second World War, recognized that's not such a good label. The war makes us sound like warmongers, so they changed the name to the Defense Department. That's just a how much that term goes down a little bit easier, makes you less afraid, more willing to support the,
0: let's say, the Defense Department budget. Another chapter in The Wisest One in the Room focuses on happiness. It's called The Happiest One in the Room. There you give some practical recommendations for how people can be happier. Can you take us through some of those? Sure. Psychologists
1: began to study happiness in earnest only about 30 years ago. and. In that time, there's just been an avalanche of, I think, interesting findings. And there are a million different books out on happiness, and a lot of them are very good. And they are oriented toward giving the audience a sense of what are some of the most important determinants of happiness. And they tell you a bunch of useful things like uh, having gratifying work is an important contributor to happiness, having uh, stable relationships. It's important to happiness. We review some of that research as well. But we take a slightly different tack because we want to give people advice they can use. So if you say, have meaningful work, it's going to make you happier. Well, great. But how do I do that exactly? I can't just go out and suddenly have a meaningful job if I don't have one already or have a a loving relationship. Well, if my relationship isn't loving right now, good luck to me. What, What am I supposed to do? So we don't quarrel with any of that advice at all. We should strive for those things. But we wanted to focus on things that the literature suggests you could just do. And there are several of those. And one of them is the idea that most of us have limited means. And so we have to make trade-offs. And sometimes we find ourselves with the trade-off of buying a thing versus having an experience. And many people quite sensibly approach that by saying, you know, I'd like the experience. I'm sure it would be great, but it'll be gone really quickly. And if I buy the thing, at least the thing will stick around. And that's true in a material sense, but psychologically, it's completely the opposite. You adapt to the thing. After a while, you're not even noticing it, whereas the experiences live on psychologically in the stories you share with other people, the connections you have with other people. And it turns out that experiential consumption creates more long-lasting enjoyment, satisfaction, a feeling that the money was better spent than does material consumption. And you can decide, you know, we're not saying, oh, become an ascetic and forswear all material possessions. No, that's not the advice at all. Just when you face these dilemmas, keep that in mind and shift your consumption a bit more in the experiential direction, a bit
0: less in the material direction and you'll be happier as a result there was a recent Harris Group survey that found that 72% of millennial consumers would rather spend more money on experiences than material goods and social media provides a way for us to broadcast our experiences as a means to accrue social capital what do you make of this trend in consumer preferences well if people are tilting their
1: expenditure a bit more in the experiential direction and away from the material direction, I wholeheartedly support this. And if our research played any role in the influencing millennials, something I'd be tremendously proud of. It's not clear that that's the case. But if people are Going hog wild for experiential consumption and let's say delaying some necessary investments in their education, in housing, and so on. uh, That's not a wise use of the money, in which case I'd be more concerned about it. Notice also that what we say, shift your consumption a bit more in the experiential direction in giving advice to the individual consumer, it applies to collectives as well. That is, if If it's the case, and the research is pretty clear on this, that people are happier by these experiences they have, we need together to decide to build an experiential infrastructure to make those experiences more likely. You can't go biking if there are no bike paths. You can't go body surfing if the beaches are polluted, et cetera. And so it's a wise public investment in
0: the kind of infrastructure that affords those experiences. Maybe it's the case that millennials are pursuing experiences and sharing them broadly to display social status, which in many ways is similar to the reasons people purchase and display luxury goods.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, people curate their lives. They're only putting good things on Facebook. Uh, no one's taking selfies of themselves alone and depressed and putting that on the on Facebook. And that creates uh, an illusory reality what psychologists call pluralistic ignorance. People, their public face is different than what's privately happening. And Facebook allows you to really amplify that. And so the idea is everyone's comparing their insides, periods of self-doubt, loneliness, angst of who knows what variety, with the lives of people, look at me here, look at me there, look what I just bought, look at all my friends, and people feel bad about it. And there are studies showing that Passive Facebook use, that is, you know, you're just looking at what other people do, seems to be associated with, you know, problematic affect and even depression. The more actively you use Facebook and you're sort of putting things online a lot yourself, that seems to buffer it a little bit. But notice those problems exist absent social media. We found that unlike the general above average effect, if you ask people, how good a driver are you? Most people think they're way above average how good a leader are you, way above average, etc. cetera. Uh, if you ask people about their social lives, people think they're below average. How many parties do you go to? I don't go to as many parties as the average person. How many friends do you have? Well, I have a fair number of friends. I'm happy with my friends, but it's not as many as other people have. How often do you dine out? The average person dines out more than I do. And This is not necessarily about Facebook that you're seeing on Facebook, people dining out and having lots of friends. You are going to be exposed disproportionately to your most social friends, whether they're on Facebook or not. You're more friends to keep to themselves. You're going to be exposed to them less often because they're keeping to themselves. And so everyone, even in the absence of social media, is going to be exposed differentially to extreme exemplars
0: of sociality and think that they aren't so social themselves. There's a lot of buzz that scientific research is experiencing a replication crisis, meaning that scientists are not able to replicate another researcher's findings, which of course is a key tenet of the scientific method. Does this give you pause or influence the way that you do your work?
1: Uh, Sure. I mean, maybe I'm overly optimistic about things, but I think this current controversy or I don't even know if it's much of a controversy anymore. This current trend is a a good thing. Uh, Science works by argument and people make claims and other people counter-argue and we're supposed to be critical of one another. We're skeptical. We've always highlighted that component of science. And I think for a while, people were too accepting of certain empirical claims. Someone would do a single study. Maybe it wasn't based on that large of a sample. The idea would get out there and it would be treated as gospel. And it's clear that a bunch of them, especially the single study, small sample findings, uh, as you would expect, aren't really that reliable. And so there's been a trend to try to clean that up, absolutely essential trend to clean that up and make sure that if you're reporting something, it really is reliable. And so it's it's a very healthy trend. Now, when you've published something, and it's not a single study, a small sample study, you've got several demonstrations of it, and then someone doesn't replicate it, now you've got an inferential dilemma. That is, was your study, set of studies right, or is their studies right? The only thing I worry about in the current state of events is before there was this sense that the person who published the positive finding, we should give that more weight because... It takes some skill to demonstrate something. So if I demonstrate it and you don't, the presumption was you're just not as skilled as I am. That's why you failed. That's a kind of an unpleasant way of framing things, but I think that's how it was implicitly framed. Now I worry that it's implicitly framed in the exact opposite way. I have several studies, peer-reviewed, not small sample, it's out there. You try to replicate it and you don't. Now the presumption is that you're right and I'm wrong. It's still the same inferential problem and we've got more work to do to figure it out. So I'm a little worried about whoever the tie goes to the non-replicator, whereas before the tie went to the person who demonstrated the phenomenon. That's a bit of a concern. And the other bit of the concern is some of it just seems unnecessarily nasty. I demonstrate something, you failed, we've got an inferential problem. Let's try and solve it as mature scientists. Instead, you often in the blogosphere these days, uh, non-replicators, saying pretty nasty things about the people who, in most cases, you know, made good faith efforts and did the best science they could do and put out an interesting idea. And maybe it's even wrong, but that's all it is, is wrong. And some of the accusations seem just going way too far.
0: Have you worked on any studies that have faced replication challenges? Uh, A study of... People's belief in tempting fate, uh, that we did some studies
1: showing that if we ask people, imagine you're in a classroom and you've done the reading for class and the professor calls on people every now and then. And there's, I forget how many number of people we cited a lecture hall. Let's just say it's 100. I don't know what it was. What do you think the chances are you're going to be called on during the hour? And people, you know, there's 100 people, so they didn't think it was very likely. They cited a very low probability estimate. Other people were told to imagine they hadn't done the reading. Uh, What do you think the chances are? And people indicated that they're more likely to be called on when they hadn't done the reading. That was part of the study. And those were two conditions. In another pair of conditions, we had people make the same estimates only now they had a mental burden. They had to respond kind of intuitively because they were asked to remember a complex digit so they couldn't bring their rational analysis to bear. And in those conditions, the effect was even stronger. And so someone used this as part of the replication investigation. And what they found was they could reproduce our basic effect. You do think that you're more likely to be called on if you haven't done the reading than if you had. But they weren't able to replicate our interaction. That is, it wasn't in the replication. It wasn't affected by whether they could do this deliberatively or reflexively, intuitively. So partial success for us. And, you know, I I don't know what the replicators, uh, attempted replicators motives were, but if they were
0: trying not to replicate it, then partial success for them. You're thinking about working on a new book with your co-author from Why Smart People Make Big Money Mistakes about decision making and practical advice for how people can make better decisions. Can you share some of these ideas?
1: We have a germ of an idea. The idea is that a lot of people Uh, We all get stuck sometimes. I don't know what to do. This is a hard decision. And most of decision theory is about helping people to make better decisions. We're going to want to create a book that will help people do that. But that's not our primary focus. Our primary focus is getting people to make a decision, getting rid of decision paralysis. Because not making a decision can be a decision as well and often a destructive one. Sometimes you need to get going. And so we want to focus on the kinds of questions you can ask yourself to achieve some greater clarity that allows you to overcome the paralysis that you experience. So for example, one question that you can ask is, suppose that your best friend was facing the exact same choice. What would you tell them? It's a simple change of perspective, but it's a change of perspective that often moves people. It allows them to achieve clarity. When we're thinking about a complex decision for ourselves, it's really hard to let go of any dimension. And we're thinking, well, this one's got seven things suggesting I ought to do A and five things suggesting I should do B. Are the five bigger than the seven? And oh, I can't figure out what to do. When you're thinking for your friend, you often focus on the most important decision and often the most, Im- excuse me, criterion, and. The most important criterion is often decisive. This is one reason why we sometimes know what our friends are going to decide before they do. They come to us for advice, and we we try to be good friends and offer them advice, but we often feel like, I know which way you're going to decide because I'm focused on the decisive element. It's harder for you to focus on the decisive element because all of them seem important, and that's one way. Just thinking about what you would tell someone else can sometimes,
0: not always, make something that's not clear seem clear. Here on Present Value, we've been asking guests if they can recall a particular time where their minds were changed. Has there been a particular hypothesis or theory that you've had uh, that once you started doing the research or investigating this theory, you changed your mind about it? Let me answer a slightly different question because it's been on my mind lately and it's in the same ballpark, uh,
1: which is A lot of psychologists have done work on the confirmation bias, myself included, and a lot of it's really interesting stuff and gives us some purchase on understanding human behavior and why two different sets of people can believe wildly different things. But we're seeing more and more of that in the context of the massive political polarization in the United States and people drawing very different conclusions from the same data And it's so pronounced that although we've made progress on figuring out motivated reasoning, people having an emotional stake in something and that influencing or even distorting their judgment, I feel like because we see so much polarization, the world is asking us, experimental psychologists, possibly experimental social psychologists, to understand it even better. And I feel like we're not ready to deliver. There's so many, you know, in the column of solve things, if you'd asked me 15 years ago, I would have been very proud of the entries in the solved column. Now, they're not seeming as impressive. And the entries in the unsolved column are looming larger. And there's just a lot of things going on right now. It's good in some ways. That is, there's a lot of topics for experimental social psychologists to study the impact of income inequality, how we're going to face the challenges of global warming. What can we get people to do to change their behavior to do so? How can we deal with polarization? In some ways, this is a, it's a good market for psychologists, but I feel like for some
0: of them, the tools that I thought we had to tackle those aren't fully up to the challenge. You're doing new work on informal conversation, what is it about informal conversation that interests you, and what can we learn about it? One of the things that
1: surprised me was learning the statistics on how people li- how many people list as their number one phobia, not <laughs> carnivorous animals, not snakes and spiders, not heights, but public speaking. People are really afraid of it, and we did some work on the illusion of transparency to make that easier for people. People thought, one of the reasons I don't like public speaking is, A, it's hard, they're worried they're not going to do a good job of it, and their worry translates into nervousness, and they're worried that their nervousness is going to show to people much more than it really does. So once they understand the illusion of transparency, good, I can calm down. My nervousness won't be as apparent. And we showed that people are able to give better impromptu speeches just by knowing about the illusion of transparency. Well, cocktail party conversation is a little bit like public speaking. And it turns out that people think that informal conversation is fraught for a lot of people. Oh, no, this, the person I'm talking to at this party, they seem okay with this for a while, but uh-oh, now I think they want they'd rather talk to that person over there. Am I boring this person? Are they liking the conversation as much as I am and so on? And so we're really borrowing from research we had done and others had done on the public speaking part and applying it to the fraughtness, if you will, of informal, everyday conversation. Again, unlike asking people about their driving ability where they think they're above average, you ask people about their conversational ability they, if anything, think they're below average. And that can't be true on average. And so maybe we can do some work
0: that makes people's social lives a little easier for them. And I understand you have more new work investigating nostalgia. How do you define nostalgia and how would you go about, how do you go about investigating that?
1: There's a number of definitions of it. I like the definition that the Czech writer Milan Kandira gives of it in his book Ignorance which for Ithacans is a must-read because it's all based on Ulysses' attempt to get back to Ithaca. He refers to it as pain over the impossibility of return. And so you think about a period in the past that you loved. So you love it, and thinking about it provides some pleasure, but of course, it's back in time. You can't get back there, and so it creates this pain. And one of the reasons that nostalgia is interesting is it's a bivalent emotion. You feel pleasure and pain at the same time. To a psychologist, that's just very intriguing. When we're mad, we're mad. When we're happy, we're happy. When you're nostalgic, you're both positive and negative. And so it's just interesting from a psychological perspective. I also think it's powerful. People long for the past, and so politicians can use that to try to motivate people to vote for their political platform if somehow it invokes the past more
0: than the opposing parties. Before we close, some friends would kill me if I didn't ask at least one question about the hot hand. (laughs) For our listeners, can you uh, explain that famous paper that you wrote and what the hot hand is and maybe just explain to us where we are today in this debate?
1: The hot hand is a phenomenon known to everyone who's ever played or watched the game of basketball, a very compelling phenomenon, that performance is streaky in basketball. You make a few shots, and you just feel different. The game just seems easier. You almost feel like you don't have to aim that carefully. The ball's just going to go in. The hoop seems huge. And when you've missed several shots, the hoop just seems really small. And we did some research thinking that that belief might be exaggerated, that because the human mind is good at spotting patterns, it finds patterns all over the place and has a little bit of difficulty recognizing random sequences. If you ask people to simulate coin flips, for example, they don't do a very good job of doing it. They alternate between heads and tails more than actually happens, suggesting that if you see a the kind of streakiness you see in flipping coins, it won't look random to you. It'll look too streaky, and so you think something's going on, and we thought a fair amount of that might be happening in the basketball domain. And so we subjected it to statistical analysis, and it turned out not just that we were exaggerating it, but it didn't look like there was any streak shooting at all. And we published that paper in 1985. As I said, this is compelling to anyone who's ever played or watched the game of basketball. People thought that was crazy, and so there were many attempts to try to rebut it. None of them really held water. Recently, there's a, the most interesting critique that's come down the, the pike, and we'll see. I'm, I'm doing some new studies for the first time in over 30 years to try to investigate the implications of that critique. So we had this radical claim in 1985, resistance to that radical claim, but it seemed to hold up just fine now a more serious challenge. And so uh, we're in a more uncertain, uh, more interesting and
0: more uncertain time right now. Tom Gilovich, thank you so much for coming on Present Value. It was really an honor having you on. Oh, it was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by Caroline Wright, Chris Alberico, and Harrison Jobe. Our editor was also Harrison. I'm your host, Michael Brady. Our engineer was Sam Lupowitz. Music by Poddington Bear. Logo by Kalechi Pomongo. And special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center for their technical assistance. Until next time... Thanks for listening to Present Value.